In the year 2001, researchers at Harvard, Duke and Northwestern uh, did a study on uh, the stock market and how mutual funds performed in, in, in conjunction with it. Uh, they did a survey and um, a third of the investors they surveyed claimed that their funds outperformed the market by at least 5%. One in six claimed that their portfolio outperformed the market by more than 10%. However, when they did a check of the portfolios belonging to those claiming to have outperformed the S&P 500, 88% of them had overestimated their earnings. Furthermore, the studies discovered that some market beaters lag between 5 and 15% behind underperforming the S&P 500. In explanation to this response, Don Moore of Northwestern said, everybody wants to believe that they're better than the average. Isn't that the truth? I don't have to be the best, but please don't let me be less than the average. Whether it's in school or sports or whatever, don't let me be less than the average. A few years back, maybe you saw a TV commercial about a new sports car. It kind of speaks to this idea. There was a voiceover with some guys playing uh, pickup basketball in the background. And the person talking says things like, it doesn't really matter who wins or loses. It's the effort that counts. And there were some nice things said about sportsmanship and fair play. And then the voice stops and says, but deep down inside, as you shake the other guy's hand and walk away, you're thinking, I'm better than you are. Everybody wants to believe they're better than average. You know, this morning we're continuing our sermon series out of Philippians, and today we come to the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And in this passage, we find something that contrasts sharply with this very human tendency that we all have at times to categorize and compare our lives to others, to make ourselves look bigger or better in our eyes and hopefully in the world's eyes too. But Paul says and wrote these words in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Now, compare the attitude of Jesus described in these verses with that of a couple of his closest friends in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be kind of comparing these two passages for a few minutes. Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, in case you're wondering, the two sons of Zebedee were two of Jesus' closest friends amongst the 12 disciples, the brothers James and John. And here they come to Jesus with their mother, and they go actually through their mother, which maybe gives us a hint that they kind of knew at some level this maybe wasn't an appropriate uh, request. But they come to Jesus, and their mother asks for a special favor. They want to be insiders. They want special connections and privileges. They want to be on the inside. And we step back and we think, and point fingers and say, how in the world, they, 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 what in the world are they thinking? They traveled with Jesus for three years. They heard his teaching. They saw him model service to other people. How in the world could they ask such a selfish, self-serving thing? And yet, would we have done anything different? We all have goals and dreams of achieving great things in life, especially when we're young. 
We, we daydream, perhaps if you're into sports, we daydream of scoring the winning basket or catching the winning touchdown pass or hitting the home run that breaks the tie in a game. Or if you're into the arts, maybe you, you think about dream of having a recording contract or writing a, a best-selling hit song or maybe having a, a prominent role on a Broadway musical. We have visions of, of making lots of money or having the all-American family. We want to achieve a certain status in life. We want to be great or at least better than most. And, and that's what James and John wanted. They, when they come to Jesus, as so Jesus so often does, he takes their perspective, he takes their question, and he spins it and turns it upside down. Continuing in Matthew 20, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Of course, Jesus was referring to the cup of the of persecution, the cross, and death. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for my father, by my father. When the ten, of course, referring to the other ten disciples, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And said, whoever wants to become great among you must be, you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now notice Jesus said, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. So being great or even wanting to be great, wanting to do great things isn't wrong. I mean, God has wired us in such a way as human beings. He's created us in his image that we have a desire, an innate desire to to accomplish, to achieve, to create, to use the gifts and abilities we've been given to do significant and meaningful things. It's called ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition. It's a gift that God has given us to motivate us and to drive us. There's nothing wrong with it. However, we can often miss the mark in two ways. First, we can allow the world to define greatness for us. Instead of looking at the scriptures and asking the Lord and looking at his definition of of what he considers greatness. And second, where we usually can miss the mark as well as where James and John miss the mark is that in the steps that we take to become great, to achieve our ambitions. James and John's mother took the usual approach. Paraphrasing, if you want to be great, you got to if you want to get what you want, you've got to go and take it. Ask for it. Leverage your position, demand it, call in favors, use influence, secure your position, what you want. And Jesus, to paraphrase, says this is the wrong approach. You're looking at it upside down. You want to be great? Let me tell you how to be great. Serve others. Become their slave. Look at me, Jesus says. I'm the son of man and I came to serve, not to be served. That leads us to our first action step for this morning. We want to improve our serve. We want to become great, serve others like Jesus Christ did. Philippians 2, 7a, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Greatness, biblically speaking, comes through service. It comes through seeking to serve, not seeking power or position. So what does it look like to serve others Like Jesus did. Well, there's a following story I want to share with you. I think it illustrates it well. It's written by a man named Jeffrey Collins, who was a worker in an inner city ministry. 
He writes, it had been a trying week at her love and action office at five o'clock on a Friday. I was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with friends. Then the phone rang. Jeff, it's Jimmy. I heard a voice say. Jimmy, who suffered from several AIDS-related illnesses, was one of our regular clients. I'm really sick, Jeff. I've got a fever. Please come over. I need your help. Collins writes, I was angry. After a 60-hour work week, I didn't want to hear about Jimmy and his problems. But I promised to be right over. But on the ride over, I complained to God about the inconvenience. The moment I walked in the door, I could smell the vomit. Jimmy was on the sofa shivering and in distress. I wiped his forehead and got a bucket of soapy water to clean up the mess. I managed to maintain a facade of concern even though I was raging inside. Jimmy's friend Russ, who also had AIDS, came down the stairs. The odor made Russ sick, too. As I cleaned the carpet around Russ's chair, I was ready to explode inside. Then Russ startled me. I I get it. I understand. What, Russ? Jimmy asked. I understand who Jesus is. He's like Jeff. Weeping, Collins hugged hugged Russ and prayed with him. And that night, Russ trusted Christ as his personal Savior, a God who had used him to show his love in spite of himself. To serve others like Jesus did means that we are to serve even when we don't feel like it. To serve others like Jesus did means that we are to serve even when we are promised nothing in return. It means to serve no matter how mundane or insignificant or even how repulsive the task may be. We are most like Jesus Christ when we serve those who can offer us absolutely nothing in return. If we're honest with ourselves, we often serve with the implicit expectation that our service will be rewarded, or at the very least be recognized or acknowledged. But Jesus says that we are to serve for the sake of service alone, for the sake of the glory of his Father, for the benefit of others, because God has called us to do so. So if you want to be great... Serve others like Jesus Christ did. For a second action step, we turn again to Philippians 2, this time verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus said this about his mission on earth in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Our second action step is if you want to be great, offer up your life as Jesus did for us. Joseph Tan was pastor of Second Baptist Church in Romania. And he writes about the following experience that he had. In years ago, he writes, I ran away from my country to study at Oxford. In 1972, when I was ready to go back to Romania, I discussed my plans with my fellow students. But they had concerns for me. They pointed out that I would probably be arrested immediately at the border. One student asked, Joseph, what chances do you have, realistically, of successfully implementing your plans? Ton prayed about it and asked God, and God brought to mind a verse from Matthew 10, verse 16. I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. And God seemed to say to Ton, tell me, what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of lasting five minutes 
let alone of, of converting the wolves. Joseph, that's how I send you. Totally defenseless, without a reasonable hope of success. If you are willing to go like that, then go. If you're not willing to be in that position, then don't go. Ton writes, after our return, as I preached, harassment and arrest came. And one day during interrogation, an officer threatened to kill me. I said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. You know my sermons are all over the country, on tapes now. If you kill me, I will be sprinkling them with my blood. Whoever listens to them after that will say, I had better listen. This man sealed it with his blood. My sermons will speak ten times louder than before, so go ahead. Kill me. I win the supreme victory then. The officer sent him home. Ton writes, that gave me pause. For years I was a Christian who was cautious because I wanted to survive. I had accepted all the restrictions the authorities put on me because I wanted to live. Now I was willing to die and they wouldn't oblige. Now I could do whatever I wanted in Romania. For years I wanted to save my life and I was losing it. And now that I was willing to lose it, I was winning it. None of us here today will likely ever be called to give up our lives as martyrs. Although if that does happen, God give us the grace to be obedient and to honor him. So what does it look like to offer up our lives? It means that we take up the cross of Jesus Christ every day, that we set aside our agenda and our ambitions that are contrary to God's will. We are to offer our lives to him and put to death anything that is counter to what God wants for us and from us which is not an easy thing to do. It's why it says we're called to take up our cross daily. It's not something you do once and you're, you're good with it. You see, every problem we have with sin is because we keep taking back control of our lives, certain areas of our lives. We all have struggles with certain aspects of our lives and putting ourselves in God's place in that life area. It's tough to lay down our lives for God because it means we're laying down the things we want and love with no guarantee that we're going to get them back. But just as Joseph Tan discovered, when we lay down our lives, it frees us up. Because we no longer cling so tightly to our lives because of fear and insecurity, we gain what we truly want and need the most, which is peace and freedom and love and joy. And so we discover through service, offering ourselves up to the God, to God, our lives to God, that if we want to be great, if we offer our lives to, to the Lord like Jesus did, we will find peace and joy and freedom in this life. Our third action step is found in a phrase again in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, zeroing in a little bit. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus had this to say in John 12, 27, when he was faced with death on the cross. And my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Christ knows what's waiting for him. He does not want to experience the agony and the pain and the, and the suffering, the humiliation, the dying process. I mean, who would? I mean, yet he willingly submits to God's will. He surrenders to God's plan for his life, which is our third action step. If you want to be great, surrender to God's will 
like Jesus did. You probably remember the name, some of you might remember the name, Bob Carlyle. He wrote the song that was a hit probably 20 years ago, Butterfly Kisses. Um, before he wrote that song, he was a, a highly paid session player, musician, and he did background music and vocals for Ario Speedwagon, Barry Manilow, and a whole bunch of other people in the 70s and 80s. And he, he described himself as a, a musical gun for hire. He writes, I was playing at bars and clubs, and as a Christian, I found myself hating it. Finally, at a big club in California, I bottomed out. In the middle of the first set, Carlisle laid down his guitar and headed out to the alley. And he cried out to God, I don't care where I go or what I do. Just get me out of here. I'll do anything. I just cannot do this anymore. Looking back, he admits, whenever I have come to a place of complete surrender, of submission, is when God moves most powerfully in my life. Within a week of his prayer, he had a phone call from a couple of other guys who were musicians, who were Christians. They formed a band and they were together for many, many years recording many albums. Only when we surrender totally and completely to God, only when we give up our will and, and, and surrender to his will, will we ever see God do great and powerful things consistently through us. So if you want to be great, serve others like Jesus did. Offer up your life daily and surrender to God's will like Christ. Now, I want to make this personal before I close here in just a second. I want to give you an application question. What is one example of an issue or situation in your life in which you need to show love for others by putting their interest ahead of your own? Even if it costs you something, even if it's something you don't want to do, even if it's inconvenient, identify that issue, the situation, and commit right now to taking some specific action in the coming week that will model what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. One final story. As a kid growing up, uh, we had horses on the farm. And, and because of that, I think I was always attracted to cowboy stories and cowboy movies, westerns, things like that. And, and I, would, I would read whatever I could uh, around, you know, around those stories, the pioneers and, and, and the cowboys and and uh, I remember one book in particular uh, as a kid, it kind of caught my fancy. And I used to kind of kind of play act in my mind when I'd ride my horse around. It was about the Pony Express. And if you know anything about the Pony Express, it was a very, very difficult job. It didn't last very long, the Pony Express, because then the railroads came through and it was obsolete. But uh, when, it was, when it was for a few years, it was really an amazing thing. You were expected to ride 75 to 100 miles a day. You would change horses every 15 to 25 miles. Other than the mail, the only baggage you carried with you, with you would be a few provisions, maybe some flour, some cornmeal, and some bacon. In case of danger, your first aid, commit was, commit, uh, first aid kit was turpentine, not sure what you do with that, borax, I guess you could get a stain out if you got it in your shirt, and cream of tartar, which I guess you could make tartar sauce if you had fish that night, I don't know. Um, but how would you, and in order to travel light and to increase speed of mobility during attacks from robbers or, or, or Indians, the men always rode in shirt sleeves, even if it was the coldest weather. Now, how would you attract employees, you know, for such a job? In 1860, San Francisco newspaper printed this ad for the Pony Express. Wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk their lives daily. Orphans preferred. Now, I mean, how many people are lining up for a job like that? I mean, really. But yet they never had a shortage. They never had a shortage of riders. 
It was a difficult and dangerous job, but people lined up to have this job for whatever reason. The adventure, the risks, the notoriety, I don't know. You know, serving God is, is not a job for the casually interested. It's tough. It can be risky. It can be dangerous. It can cost you. It will cost you something because God asks for our lives. He asks for service for him to become a priority and not just a pastime. He doesn't want servants who will give him just the leftovers of their life commitments. Serving God is not to be a short-term responsibility. It takes a willingness to do whatever God wants, whenever God wants, and however God wants. It calls for you and me to lay down our lives, our very lives, in order to gain it. Wanted. Gifted volunteers for a difficult service in the local expression of the kingdom of God. Motivation to serve should be obedience to God, gratitude, gladness, humility, love, and a strong understanding of God's grace. Service will be rarely glorious. Temptation to quit place of service will sometimes be strong. Volunteers must be faithful in spite of long hours, little or no visible results, and possibly no recognition except from God in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us, who left his place in heaven to become one of us. He knew to understand pain and loss and and sickness and even face death on our behalf. Lord, he came, even though he was the king of the kings, he came to serve and not to be served. And so, Lord, help us to follow his example. Help us to become more like Jesus, to serve others, to offer up our lives in service, and to surrender to your will for us. We thank you, Father, for your great love. We ask that you be honored through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?